Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. Glad you're tuning into this episode. And uh, hey, I want to mention real quickly before we get to the interview, um, if, uh, if you'd like to hang out with me at Theology Beer Camp. Theology Beer Camp is in Springfield, Missouri, for those of you who are in the Midwest who are listening. Um, Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity is hosting this. There's, I think, 30 theologians, 30 podcasters, uh, some musicians and stuff like that. And uh, it's it's the craziest, uh, most fun, nerdy theological experience I think that you could probably have. It's definitely theology that's not boring. And so, uh, or or as Tripp says, that doesn't suck. Theology that doesn't suck. All right. So uh, anyway, um, you can go to my website, spiritualityadventures.com, and you can go on there and use, uh, I think it's what, spirituality pod is the code that you can use to purchase a ticket come hang out at the conference you can get a discount with that code so check it out there on the website we'd love to see you there i'll be hanging out love to have some friends join me and uh yeah so today it's kind of fun i went to the wild goose festival two year last year actually last year for the first time that was 2022 july 2022 and uh brian mclaren had had encouraged me to go to it brian literally would have been the only person that i knew going into it right so i show up at this uh at this kind of wild goose i don't know what you would call it like kind of progressive christian woodstock camping north carolina experience maybe and show up there and i'm i jump on a uh a little golf cart taking me from the parking lot to the main festival area. And all of a sudden somebody goes, Hey, are you Fred Heron? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And, and it was Josh <laughs> and, uh, Josh used to attend vineyard church back like in 2000, somewhere like eight, nine, 10, somewhere in that area, right? Six, seven, eight, yeah. nine, ten, somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, he and his wife actually uh, were married by one of my pastors at Vineyard Church. And so it was so cool because uh, it was fun to, to I, I, help me feel comfortable really fast, Josh, to bump into somebody that I knew and, and uh, they kind of knew my world. And, and I think probably could relate to some of the stuff that I had gone through as well in terms of just uh, my whole uh big meltdown and then kind of re-emerging into uh, rethinking some of my theology and beliefs and all that kind of stuff. So thanks, Josh, for joining us. Um, and this is Josh Burton. Uh, and I, I want to just jump in and have you share some of your background, where you grew up, maybe your family experience, your faith journey, kind of give us a brief introduction to yourself. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to dive into some, uh, some therapy talk and Religious trauma talk. How's that? Sure. For <clears throat> um, joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Fred. Um, yeah. It, it was both bizarre and um, just fantastic to run into you on the golf cart. I, it's still such a, of the thousands of people there, the fact that we both hit that same golf cart at the same, it, it was, it was pretty awesome. Cause I don't know that we, if we're in the crowd, I don't know if I'd have been there to pick you out. So oh, it was I- great. 
<laughs> I, well, I wouldn't. There's no way. I mean, yeah. I, I certainly when you know when I clued in, I recognized you, remembered you, and all that stuff. But uh, I, I, never, I don't think I would ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think I would ever picked you out of a crowd. I don't think anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I like to joke in terms of like my spiritual history. Um, it, I mean, this is actually factually true, but my mom's water broke during a Baptist altar call. And I like to joke that's because Baptist altar calls are nine months long. But I mean, if you if you're a Baptist, you're laughing. Um, and and uh, like literally grew up where most of my childhood was in church. You know, it was that, that was our primary like cultural, social activity. Um, we, we sort of progressed through more traditional American Baptist to becoming Southern Baptist. And this was before the Southern Baptist sort of had their big cultural split. So they still were primarily like a community Baptist. I mean, we, we like legitimately did things like we went and saw shut-ins and we brought food to people and, um, we volunteered and like tried to show up for the needs in the community and like that that's when i think of my childhood experience my i don't know up until like middle school ish early high school before like the sort of religious right takeover of the baptist conversation like it was a lot of like we're just going to show up and love people in our community and meet practical needs and so i i actually had a really positive experience in my early childhood um with with church as part of my life we moved a, a lot growing up. And so I didn't get to participate in sports consistently or like never got to do scouts. I did some of those kinds of things. Um, um, anyways, at, at some point, my parents discovered um, the charismatic tradition. That's a story in and of itself, but it was like mid high school. And then we swapped from being Southern Baptist to attending um, a really sort of growing charismatic church. Um, and that opened up a lot of things, including learning about, um, again, this is a whole nother tangent, but learning about the Brownsville revival that was in Pensacola, Florida, that had just started a ministry school. And, you know, I, I did crazy things like turn up, turn down actual scholarships to actual schools. And I went to go do ministry work. And so I went to, um, to, to Bible college down at the revival that was going on in Florida. So I forgot um, about that. Yeah, it's it's a story. <laughs> I forgot that you went to Brownsville. Holy crud. Wow. Uh, we've come a ways, Josh. We have. We have. We have. Yeah. Uh, interesting. For those of you who don't know, um, you know, and, and some of my audiences isn't from the vineyard world, you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. I picked up new people and all that who only know me in the last few years, but um, I was in this vineyard movement for uh, 29 years. And in the nineties, there was this thing called the Toronto renewal and mm -hmm. one of the vineyards up in Toronto really had daily meetings, kind of renewal revival type charismatic, very charismatic Pentecostal stuff, you know, that went for two, three years. And I actually know the guys, you know, that, that were a part of that. And then, kind of kicking out of that, then there was this assembly of God version of the mm -hmm. Toronto new that kicked off in Brownsville, which is Florida, right? Yeah. It's, it's actually in Pensacola. It was like a historic African-American community that was like the Brownsville neighborhood in, in Pensacola. 
Yeah. And it, it then kind of had a similar thing where people from all over the world poured in and very, very sort of Pentecostal, give your life to Jesus. And, mm-hmm. and I think maybe probably leaned a little bit more legalistic and bent than, than the Toronto renewal, probably. It seemed to yeah. take on a totally, totally uh, what I would call very legal. Like, like I even had vineyard friends who were going there and they'd tell me the stuff that was being taught. And I was just like, I was cringing a little bit back then even, you know, just cause it was, seemed so legalistic and fundamentalist and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, had a lot of energy. People from all over the world showed up, mm-hmm. showed up at their, at their training school. Yeah. It was, it was an odd um, cultural experience. And like, occasionally I'll run into people that went there and, you know, it's like, it, I don't know, it's sort of like going to Woodstock. I'm sure people are like, there's a, just a handful of people that understand exactly what that experience was like. Right. right. You know, yeah, we know. <laughs> um, did did I, that experience, while you were there, were you there for a year or two or something? It's two years. Two years. And um, did did when you spilled out of that, was it, would have you, you've seen it positively or negatively after you got, went through it just that time in your life? You know? Yeah. At, at that time I, I, so I was working, I was on youth um, ministry staff there. And so I was, I had a, a small group I was leading. I was one of the interns. And so I got to see sort of firsthand the anxieties that were coming up in these like middle school and high school kids I was working with. And so it was pretty early. I started to make a pretty hard line about just supporting them and having a message about the love of God and just making that my, the the way that I was going to lead. And funny enough, like um, we had requirements that we had to go to a youth leaders meeting on Sunday mornings. And it was ahead of the, um, the main church services on Sunday mornings. Somewhere my first semester, I would go to that 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 meeting, and because the services were so big, you could get lost in the crowd, but you couldn't get lost in that meeting because there there was a smaller group. So I would go to that meeting, and then I'd hop in my little Honda Civic hatchback, and I would drive across Pensacola to this like burnout Exer church that was meeting in the warehouse district with like that was totally like open and affirming. And like I, I started doing that as my church on on the side. So by you know by the time I got out of there, I had really, I, I had really drawn some lines about where I was starting to put my energy. And I, luckily, I mean, there's things that I, I don't know, regret's a heavy word, but there's things that you could regret about that kind of experience. It definitely was an alter experience. I don't really regret how I showed up in the lives of the people that I was having responsibility for. Like, I felt like even today, obviously you get, I've got a couple decades since then, I would say different things, mm-hmm. but, but I, I feel like I started to wrestle with what's the core of how I want to show up in the world there. And so, you know, leaving the experience, it was, they, they had a big split with the denomination shortly after I left. And um, then the, it, it's a, it's a story in and of itself, mm-hmm. but it was another one of those like denominational takeovers. We've got the money, you know, and so the school wound up splitting off from the, the denomination at that point. Um, mm-hmm. So it, that probably at the time left more bad blood because you had, you had students that you knew and teachers that you knew that were having to decide, do we align with the domination or do we go and try to pioneer another Bible college? That's not, not got a building frankly, to meet in. So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> yeah. And then out of, out of that, um, I did, um, 
I, I hooked up with sort of an ex-vineyard pastor, um, church planner, and we did inner city church planning in Kansas City in a huge refugee resettlement community. And I, I lived in that community. I had a house in that community, um, incredibly diverse, um, bought up an old Catholic campus and tried to tried to do really presence based, like we're, we're just going to be neighbors, you know, like, and we're, we're, when we have meals, we're eating together. And we, we tried to do meals every week. And we tried to just um, try to embed ourselves in the lives and be a part of the community, not just like come in in the midst of and now legitimately, I was really poor at that point. So like, I, I won't say anybody else there. <laughs> we were sort of equal standing at that point economically, but like, we we showed up and it wasn't like we were coming in, you know, uh, to try to save the community. We really were trying to be a part of the community to the degree that we could. Mm -hmm. um, still would do it differently now, but some of that stuff, I, I felt like for the little bit that we knew we were trying to show up. Um, and sort of at the end of that, my life, and this is a whole other story, sort of tragically fell apart of the stuff that I had been building. And it was, um, you know, lo lots of debt and relationship loss and stepping out of out of ministry and going and getting a, a, a real job is what I was telling myself. I, I don't know that I actually feel that way. Um, and then lo and behold, I show up at the vineyard um, and hook up uh, with a couple people there that were really working on um, inner healing and counseling. And that sort of became where I plugged in. Um, and then, then you got to know me as well. <laughs> right. And you met your wife in Kansas City. Is that right? Yeah, um, we were back in the day when um, internet dating was new and you just assumed about everybody was going to abduct you. Um, <laughs> like it, it was new, new, like um, we we met internet dating, um, believe it or not. And um, and so, uh, you know, gosh, we didn't date terribly long. It was only about nine months or so before we got um, eh, let's see, 11 months um, before we got married. Um, and we got married at the vineyard and then started our life, um, life together there. Um, and now we're going on, gosh, 17 years married. Yeah. Wild. So, so bring us up to speed where you're at now, like spiritually, and then let's, then we're going to dive into some, some therapy, religious trauma stuff. Yeah. So, um, after Vineyard got involved in like increasingly progressive congregations, um, uh, also got involved with sort of the mystical meditative um, using the Enneagram, using meditation practices. Um, it was still progressive Christian, but like leaning on some Buddhist traditions, did that for a while in um, here in Raleigh at a, at a local congregation. Um, and then, you know, sort of have been increasingly get involved in like podcast and virtual communities I, for a while. Um, we're not operating any anymore, but for, I guess it was about four years, we operated a virtual um, religious trauma group for people coming out of the Bible college that I was a part of. There was a couple of us, four of us that decided to found an online group and we grew it to be a little over a hundred people. And we started to just like baby step into what does it mean to create a safe space for people to, to talk about depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, you know, questions about their faith. Um, and, and actually out of that, two of us decided to go and pursue formal education to be therapists, believe it or not. That, that was sort of, for us, that was a life-changing experience because we're like, you know, we need more training. Um, so did that for a while. Um, 
and let's see um now it's i don't know quite how to describe what i am today if that makes sense eclectic is maybe um values driven and eclectic would probably be what i would say like i i really have a strong sense of like what what's important to me in creating space for for showing up for those values and for the people that i choose to show up for but also inviting them to wrestle with what does it mean to show up for their values as well um and so in and that for me includes things like hope and a faith but but i hold it loosely like this i get benefit because i hope in these things and i i can see a personal benefit in it and i can see a communal space that i can create by holding hope for that but i don't feel like i have to hold it any tighter than that because i'm not insecure about it like mm -hmm. it's it's okay that it's just a beautiful hope um like it's doing the job that it's meant to do in me and it's bringing meaning that i need it to bring um and i want to create opportunities for other people to have that kind of like meaning making space where they don't have to defend a framework that then I'm going to come at them and try to poke apart. And that's probably more where I land today. So I try to see the beauty and the, you know, the complexity of what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. So um, give our, give our audience just a sense of like your, the training that you're doing in therapy right now, where, where are you doing that at and what, what's sure. your focus? And then we'll, then I will dive into some. Yeah. So, um, you know, some people when they have a midlife crisis, um, I, I've been working in like government program management, affordable housing, low income families for uh, about 15, 20 years now. Um, uh, I uh, decided I wanted some change and some people go out and get a motorcycle and I decided I was going to get an MSW degree and go into um, clinical social work to do um, mental health specifically. Um, and so I started. Um, I'm in my third year now um, with uh, UNC um, here in North Carolina, University of North Carolina, um, working to get my master's in social work. And um, I'm currently in my final year of internship placement. Um, it's it, for this kind of program. It's it requires two years of actual placement in the field. Um, so it's, it's very course heavy at the beginning and it's very practical in the end. We, we do have a little bit of coursework now, um, but I'm, I'm putting in two full days a week, sometimes more, um, doing clinical mental health work, um, here in Raleigh at a, at a local private practice. And then I'm getting essentially credit. It's not college credits, but I'm getting credit towards the internship. Um, and hopefully it will be wrapped up in May. And then at that point I'll get a different level of licensure and can start doing things like bill insurance directly. So. That's what I'm working on. Excellent. Okay. So, um, I went to rehab for 120 days back in, uh, November, 2018 to through February, 2019. And, um, you know, I, I remember like being in, you know, courses that I took for pastoral care and we took courses on counseling models, therapy models, anywhere from Rogerian to RET, you know, rational emotive therapy to all these you know, there's a psycho, so psychoanalysis, you know, you, mm -hmm. when you do these, you get introduced to all these different therapy models. But when I was in rehab, I got introduced to DBT therapy, mm -hmm. which I had some bad experiences actually in rehab, but that was one thing, you know, mm -hmm. out of all the bad things, that was one thing that I felt like was positive. And particularly mm -hmm. I loved the mindful meditation component right. of that. So, you know, like growing up evangelical and, and then vineyard, 
when we talked about meditation, it usually meant, met, you know, rolling scripture over in your head, right? Like right. meditating on scripture kind of thing. Maybe, maybe some worship music with yeah. in. But I had never really participated in any kind of uh, mindfulness meditation or any any of the influence of, say, you know, Buddhism and meditation kind of world. And so I really got attracted just because I have a, you know, I'm, I have anxiety disorder. That was my racing brain. That's what gave me insomnia. And I didn't sleep very well for 30 years. And that's what really got me into trouble when I started trying to to work on that. So I pressed into the DBT stuff when I got back to out of, when I came to Kansas city, I looked around and there's a lady named Amy Tibbetts that started Lilac center in Kansas city year, you know, decades ago, she studied with Marsha Linehan mm-hmm. and, um, and I started actually going to her, seeing her, had her on my podcast. We talked about DBT. And for those of you who have been longtime listeners, you know, if you didn't, if you missed that episode, you could go back like two and a half years and find Amy Tibbetts and us talking about that. But I found DBT super helpful for me. And, and as I was trying to rebuild my life, I also found uh, internal family systems really helpful. I found that model really helpful. And then I noticed that you, I have not really uh, myself done any uh, of the worked with the ACT model um, acceptance yeah. commitment therapy. So I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like if you think about those three models and I know there's so many more, but if you think about mm-hmm. those three, how do they overlap? How are they, how are they different? Um, and what give us, give me your take on that and kind of how you, where you found real, where, where you want to dig in and where you found value for what you're going to be doing and with your, you know, or what you're currently doing, what you're going to be doing in the future. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a great question. So, um, and, and I'll, I'll just preface this when I'm, I'm a, I'm a learning novice, but, but so if it, it I'll, I'll hold to the pieces that I know, um, I'm sure there are experts that know each of those better, but, um, those are all in the family of cognitive behavioral therapies. Um, that's the way that is becoming more, more and more common to talk about them. Um, and so there is what they call the third wave of, of therapy models, which is more of what we're seeing. Um, currently, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act is one of them. DBT is one of them. IFS is one of them. There's a number of them that are now sort of third wave, which is you know based on what they have learned over the years of, of the CBT school. And so there are diff- different variations of it. But practitioners would basically say it's all in the family. It's all part of these CBT schools. Um, behavioral therapy for those of you who aren't familiar yeah. with these, these, these little, <laughs> these, these little acronyms. Yeah. And so DBT, like sometimes when you're trying to assess where you're going to get traction or what the presenting problem is with a client, sometimes you're looking at things that are behavioral primarily. Um, and so like, if you think CBT, there's some that are the big B they'll talk about. And DBT is a big B therapy. It's a big behavioral therapy. Um, and so it's going to deal much more at, at prescribing things to notice and intervene around behaviors that then become sort of reinforcers of more behaviors, sometimes that lead to thoughts but maybe triggered by thoughts and then these you get stuck in these behavioral patterns right and so um it it has more versions of like 
uh, worksheets and processes, like a true DBT experience is actually like you're, you're working with a team in a small group similar to like AA typically, like there, there, are, there are therapists that use DBT skills and they use DBT to help provide therapy, but a true like Marshall Linehan model, you're actually gonna be in a small group with DBT coaches mm -hmm. doing your work. Um, and, and so there is like that AA piece of like group support around behaviors. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's, um, I think DBT is really, really great because it de does deals with like embodiment and it deals with things that are showing up um, for us in our head that are causing behavioral reactions or triggering behavioral reactions that we, that we don't really know. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's the space that I think it occupies really, really well. Um, it's, it's like if I was to talk about like sort of the, the conscious mind, the unconscious mind and the body, like it's, it to me fits first really in that, like that bodily experience kind of piece where you're learning what, what you're responding to in your behaviors right and like it helps you manage those first which may eventually let you get traction to work on thoughts right or to work on sort of unconscious motivators and so like for a lot of people it's you got to get that those behaviors in a place where you're not like blowing up your life anymore actively so that you can maybe get traction in some of these other areas um ifs or internal family systems um takes a lens of sort of um understanding people as their parts. You know, you probably have had somebody that you've talked to and they go, well, part of me feels this way and part of me feels that way. Or sometimes in a situation and part of me really wants to show up and go to this party. And there's a part of me that also wants to wants to stay home and, you know, wants to just eat ice cream and cry to myself, right? Um, so what, what it does is it really takes and personifies those parts. There's particular roles that it, that it recognizes in IFS for like managers and firefighters and exiles. Um, they're sort of three primary roles, but where people start to then put their own identifiers around parts of their experience that have really adapted and almost become fixated roles in this tangled fight that they do in, in their internal family. That's, that's where the internal family systems comes from. Um, and IFS to me probably reminds me the most of like some of the inner healing stuff that I was a part of where you might use things like imagination um, to try to engage yourself at a more vulnerable moment where there was a trauma occurring or a place that you continue to get stuck. Mm -hmm. And then you, you are able to step into that place and imagine saying to yourself the thing that you needed to say to, to not react in pain or to not react in a way that then embeds sort of a traumatic response. Um, and so IFS is a lot of negotiating like those those roles within yourself. But I, to me, it leaves it lives in those like almost unconscious drivers, like people, people that really, really benefit from it are those that like, OK, I figured out how to manage my behavior and I figured out how to manage my thoughts. But I keep winding up in these situations and I can't explain why I keep acting this way. Like and it, it to me does that piece of it better than the other two do. Mm. Um, and that sort of brings me to acceptance and commitment there, because it to me is is in the CBT school. It's a strong C. It's a strong cognitive process. And so like acceptance and commitment therapy, really, you have to have the ability to notice yourself. Um, so to, to back up when you're talking about mindfulness meditation, the way that that I train about mindfulness 
um, is most of the time, and this is tied to acceptance and commitment therapy, people have triggers, they have patterns of behaviors, they have things that show up in their life. Um, and we have autonomic processes that we just run in. We've written the script, it kept us safe at a previous point in our life. We're doing the thing that our brain or our body says, this is gonna bring me protection, this is gonna bring me significance, love, it's gonna bring me attention, whatever, whatever it is. Whether or not it actually does that anymore, we've become so habituated to reacting and responding that way that it's just going, right? Um, mindfulness for me is helping clients. And what, what we call is we call that being fused. Like there's, there's an identity of yourself. There's a pattern of behaviors. There are things that are occurring in your life and you are fused to that, that conceptualized identity. You are fused to those behaviors. The trigger happens and we're just moving around. We're, we're moving down the stream. We're doing the same thing we've done a thousand times. You see this like in relationships really commonly where I'll, I'll sit with somebody and they're like, yeah, we've had the same fight for eight years. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So so let's talk about the patterning here and what's showing up. And, and are we willing to start looking at, at how we've gotten fused in this pattern? And you're just basically reinforcing it again and again and again with lots of repeated conflicts. Mindfulness which is also at the core of DBT, um, but I think it's getting into some of that noticing your behaviors. Mindfulness with the ACT school is, is about making just the slightest bit of space between the trigger and our response. And mm -hmm. can I notice that there is something happening in my life that is, is a prompt? It is a situation. It is an experience. It is, it is you know, a person and I have the ability to notice that I, my brain is generating thoughts, it's generating feelings, it's generating urges, and it wants to respond to that scripting. But can I notice it and create just enough space to go, okay, now, now there, there's me and there's the observer of me here. Mm -hmm. and, and if there's the observer of me here, I could maybe choose to do something different in that situation. Like I don't just have to say, well, you made me feel this way. Mm -hmm. I can go, my brain is telling me that this is going on or my feelings are showing up and this is the feeling that is showing up. And I notice that and I can still choose to do something different. So, and that there, there's a lot more, there's, it's a hexaflex model. It's basically six points of flexibility that you're trying to embed with acceptance and commitment therapy as a model. But when you think of like some of the work of ACT, that's right at the core is just maximizing that space for the observer yeah. and really the next thing that i do with clients is i try to pivot them into what does a life that matters to you actually look like and and we we do um values driven interviewing where i actually go through and i'll interview them on their life story and we start to build a, a list of you know these are the things that i would build over in my life if it got destroyed or if i was 70 i would say my life was incomplete if i didn't have it in my life and we start to look at the stories that we're telling ourselves in there and see what, what sticks, what are the things that they actually want to hold to. And then what we try to do is when we work on getting that break between the fused mind and the ability to make a choice as we go, okay, you're showing up with the power that you have today, with, with who you are today, and you want to make a choice that puts you 1% towards your values, 1% towards a life that you would say matter. What, what would that be today? And, and if you can get people into just the slightest bit, 1%, 2% of a change where they can start to 
make make a different choice in those situations you can actually walk them out of like some anxiety looping some depression looping like things that are just getting reinforced again and again because they're starting to live a life that they think matters to them mm. and so like all the feedback that's coming from their internal systems their amygdala all their endocrine systems that's telling them like i might die or you know i am dying and it's depression right like all these things that are sending signals to our body like they start to break down because they're able to tell themselves a different story about the life that they're actually living Mm. So, I was thinking a couple of things popped in my head as you're uh, explaining that. So, um, Victor Frankl, you know, a Holocaust survivor, has this famous quote: "Between stimulus and response, there is a space. Mm -hmm. That space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and freedom." And so that, so that immediate, you know, our, our reptilian amygdala brain fight, flight, freeze. I, I I'm trusting the science behind mindful meditation. Cause I've been pressing into this for a couple of years now, and I'm doing a training with a uh, two year tr teacher training with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. Mm -hmm. I'm in about six months in now. Um, but the idea is that through mindful meditation, we can, we can expand that space, right? It, it, it can become a little larger. If Am I hearing you right? Is that kind of what you're describing? Yeah. The, the other thing I was thinking about, which, which is extremely valuable, right? For, I mean, when you create space between your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex and can give your prefrontal cortex a little bit more room to, to breathe and make good decisions and regulate your emotions, you know, that, that's pretty healthy, I think, <laughs> versus just reaction all the time. The other thing I was thinking about, you know, when we talk about inner Christian inner healing, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to me because, you know, I, I really dove into that pretty heavily. And then, as you know, we tried to create, you know, uh, a church model for that. Um, and, and if you study the, the roots of that, it really it really was some early Christian leader mostly that i know like catholics and episcopalians mm -hmm. and stuff who yeah. who were into psychoanalysis right mm -hmm. but then they they tried to kind of take some of the psychoanalysis therapy kind of move it into a, a bit more of a christian framework wouldn't you would that be accurate to you do you think uh, that's how i always thought about it it may not be <laughs> uh, i think that's like in the mix for sure and and i also think there's like you know, you got some a lot of history in Christian mystics and like the Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah. Like we, we we know the church that we know because the, it was the one that got the money and the power, like the one that became systemized and became, you know, resourced. But but, you know, there's been a lot of tradition in the Christian church for centuries that that in, embraced this like embodied meditative practices, you know, but you don't you don't lead tens of thousands because you're you're showing up as a desert monk, right? Like that's, you know, that's not that's not the way it works. So I, I think there is some of that where, like, if you look at any of the early Christian mystics, I I think they had a very like imagination friendly and embodied experience. Like that was core to their spiritual story. And so I to me, it doesn't seem like you're having to pull from some other tradition. Not that I think there's any reason to judge that, but. I, I think it's it's there in the tradition. It just isn't. So I mean, um, you like going back into some of the the, the Middle Age mystics, even you think 100%. all the way. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. I I didn't ever think of it that way. I think I was 
so much into modern uh, therapy models that I, yeah. yeah and, you know, and that honestly in the, in the gap that the, my education, you know, all the theology that I've done, probably the thing that I had the least amount of immerse, immersion into was the mystics, the, the mm. Christian mystics through the tradition, which I kind of like now I kind of like, ah, dang, I need to go back and <laughs> dig into some of that. But uh, I need a couple of lifetimes just to learn all that I want to learn, Josh, you know? <laughs> yeah. I hear you. Uh, so, okay. So let's talk about how this then religious trauma, let's, let's, how do people like, yeah, this is too big of a question, but uh, as you are working with people, what, what do you see some of the most common elements of religious trauma? How would you define that? What are, what are some of the ways, what are some of the things that help or, or that create religious trauma? And then how do these therapy models help yeah. us? <laughs> so so a heavy therapy term is called a functional analysis. And so as a, as a therapist, one of the things that we try to do is we try to look at what does that belief or that behavior actually do for the person? Um, and, you know, I think too often when it comes to things like religious systems, we, we try to approach it purely from a cognitive lens of like, well, you know, you're, you're using this set of proofs and this set of documentation and these cultures to reference. And that's, that's why you believe it this way. And somebody else goes, well, this is why I believe that way. Right. And it's, it's all in the cognitive space. And that's how we try to approach a lot of those, those things. Functionally, I think if you actually look at what religious beliefs actually do for people, it, it has a lot of, a lot of actual very deep psychological purposes it manages i mean we're, we're in a world right now obviously you and i are talking on different sides of the country using the internet right now right and we literally could get off of this and look at information about anything in the world we could be inundated with a anxiety trigger about something going on in a part of the world we will never go to right that that could happen two minutes after you and i finish today um that that is an ever present reality that we all are living in today um and and so when we start to understand that the world is increasingly complex and we're also in a world that seems to be more pressured towards pushing people towards snap judgments of, of virtue signaling or of you know aligning with one party or another party um, which ultimately i would say if you do a functional analysis those are primarily about managing anxiety, showing some tribalism. These are my people, these are my community. Um, religious belief systems, I, I think, fulfill a huge role right now in, in managing a lot of anxieties. I think it's always had that role, but when you think of a world, especially the next, last 20, 25 years, um, that has gotten so complex and so big, and there is a level of good, bad, evil, injustice, power plays, um, cultural change that we're experiencing all, all in there. Like when, when you were, if you were to sit down and interview something about somebody about what they believe, you might start with what they believe about their holy books and their scripture and their doctrines, but pretty quickly it's going to get into other cultural issues. It's going to get into economics. It's going to get into political parties. It's going to get into lots of other things that, that are the beliefs of the system. Functionally, when we look at that, I think a lot of these belief systems have become a version of a tribalized identity for people. And it's what their community 
has has formed around. Maybe that's their parents. Maybe that's their grandparents. Maybe it's not. I mean, it may be tied to their to their birth family. It may not be. Um, but but it's become a really powerful system for managing meaning making, for telling somebody what's good, what's bad, for managing sources of anxiety. If you can quickly sort, you know, somebody comes to you and okay, we've got you know um, starving immigrants at the at the border, right? Well. That, that's a very complex issue, right? Um, that, that is a difficult thing to, to decide how, what, what level of responsibility should somebody have for that? What system should be in play? How do we address that adequately? You know, what, what are the level needs? Where, where should they go? Like, these are very, very complex situations. People that want to reduce it to like, this is the one answer. Like, they, they really are complex situations. If you've got a belief system that goes, here's my answer for, what we do with immigrants, um, always welcome the immigrants. Or, you know, I, I also have a version of patriotism that says that, no, they're a threat, you know, and we, we see both of those actually in two different kinds of churches going on right now. They, we've got some that have become, um, you know, havens and protectors of immigrants and some that have gone the other way, right? And, and both of those, I would say that that's an issue that goes beyond our, our faith system, but it's gotten embedded in these like subsets of belief systems that become tribalized identities. Um, humans, ultimately, we really want to belong to something and we want to belong to something that's bigger than ourselves. Um, we want to belong. I mean, we are the social primate, you know, at our core. And so like we are constantly looking for what does it take to belong? And I, I think if you really look at the function of belief systems and religious belief systems, I think, are, are just one of the most powerful ones. I mean, they manage what we don't know about what happens when we die. I mean, if you want to talk about like something going well beyond the reach of even the world that we're going to live in, we're going to say, hey, we've created a system that even explains what, what happens then, right? That's powerful. I mean, it's, it's deeply, deeply powerful. And so when you talk about people experiencing religious trauma, like you're talking about a context where they are a part of something that exceeds even their lifetime and it has defined their community and it has defined their maybe their political position it has defined their view on economics it has opened up friends to them it's opened up other maybe business opportunities to them it, it has been for a lot of people it hasn't been a cognitive thing. This has been a world defining framework that gave them access to their human experience. And, and in that, you have humans being humans. You have humans that abuse power. You have humans that like, you have humans that make mistakes. You have humans that compete with one another and take advantage of opportunities, right? Like humans are humans, right? But it shows up in this space where there's, there's so many unmarked connections. It's like a spider web in somebody's soul, right? Like it's got so many places that it's tied up that we don't fully understand it. And then something happens. Usually you see a shift, you know, it, a lot, a lot of people, it's like they've got a family member or a neighbor that they they love deeply and they come out to them, right? That's been a big one in recent years. And they're like, wait, my compassion can't be real in the context of my actual community if I don't embrace this person and figure out how to love them, right? And then they find out, oh, the belief system, that's that doesn't fit in the belief system. And then the, everything gets thrown up on its, on its end, right? Like you have people that, okay, you can't be part of our club anymore. You can't be part of our, our church. What, what that does for people is it takes so much away and it leaves them reeling for 
something that can explain the complexity of life, that gives them a community, that helps them know what good and bad is. I mean, it's deeply powerful, right? And I think it's wrong to say, like, for some people, they don't have the experience that, like, hey, a church leader abused me. I certainly know people do. I've had conversations with people that that was their experience. And it's real easy for those people to go, like, yes, that qualifies as some version of religious trauma because it's got a face behind it, right? I think the majority of people that I talk about, it's like they got shunned by people that were their close friends, or they can't go to Thanksgiving with their family anymore because they believe something differently. Or they simply were free-falling for a year or two and experienced severe anxiety and depression because everything in their brain was telling them that they might die because they lost their social network, they lost their explanation for a good role, they lost their, like, everything got thrown up. And now they're like, I don't know how to build this on my own from scratch, right? And that in and of itself should be traumatic for most people, right? And so I think that, you know, religious trauma gets applied pretty broadly. You also have, you know, you and I talked a little bit earlier, too, about religious systems that become pressuring in and of themselves or performative in and of themselves, right? And that, again, those to me feel a little bit more obvious. But like, yes, if you're being left in an abusive relationship, if you aren't allowed to think for yourself because you have to run everything by church leadership, like I have met people, but those to me seem so much more obvious because they're clear abuses of power, they're taking away the ability for, you know, partners and families to make decisions that they need to make together, those kinds of things. But I think that also gets grouped in. There is, and I'm spacing on the name, there is actually several studies on religious strain that one of the universities, I want to say it's Northern Midwest, has done. That is interesting if somebody's looking to research in that area where they're looking at like the impact of sort of these toxic ideas and the toxic ideas about God, the toxic ideas about what happens if I leave the church, do I go to hell, do, you know, those kinds of things. And the long and short of it is there is some clear correlation that some people in the more extreme, and you look at the bell curve, the more extreme toxic ideology about God and about what happens to them, you know, a big angry God, those kinds of things, that they have more of like a PTSD response in terms of the embodied response that they experience. It correlates more like that. And so there's actually been some decent psychological research in the ideas space of like, what does a really harsh idea of God do versus what does the idea of a God that welcomes you or a community that welcomes you do? And they've seen that in the long-term mental health of the data set that they were able to, they have actually done five or six studies. So it's not just one, but worth looking into if somebody's got interest in that area. Say it again. Religious strain. If you go to Google Scholar and type in religious strain, I could pull it up while we're talking, but it's pretty easy to find. There's like several studies out there. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, pastoring people for 40 years, you know, people, you know, experience life, they flow in and out of religious communities. They believe, they don't believe, they, or they, you know, or they believe five thing, you know, out of the 10 things that this religious community do, they, they like five or six of them and their kids really like it, but they're not sure about the other three or four, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
some some religious trauma, I guess, could be uh, a cognitive thing where you just the stuff that you were taught growing up and the simplicity of that doesn't work for you anymore. Cognitive dissonance creates like, oh, this this isn't really what I believe anymore. And if you're really heavily rooted in that sociologically, then leaving uh, a community can be extremely stressful, create lots of dissonance and could, like you mentioned, it can cause problems with family or friends or you lose family, you lose friends, you lose your community. I mean, I, I've just gone through that, right. These last four or five years. Um, and it was such, it was so much trauma. I, I, I literally questioned everything I'd ever believed. And I felt so depressed that I, I had failed my own religious system of beliefs. Like I had let myself down, you know, I didn't live up to some of my, core values and my professed beliefs and the things that I had taught for years. And it just fell apart for me. And I had to, it just literally went dark and I had to question everything. And I felt super depressed and close to suicide probably. Um, that's, I mean, and you know, I'm not alone in that. And the reasons that I went through that aren't the same as other people who have gone through that kind of deep religious trauma. And it, sometimes it is a, an abusive power figure, right? Who either sexually or however abused. Um, but sometimes it is this cognitive dissonance with, with the community that we've grown up with. And then it doesn't work for us anymore. Um, so many angles to religious trauma. And I, I, I actually do think it's like PTSD. Like as I've studied, you know, how the amygdala stores trauma in order to protect you in the future. It's, it's a survival instinct, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you go through that trauma, anything that triggers it, you know, oh, you know, you're all of a sudden you're moving away from it. So yeah. what have you, um, for people who have, who have gone through that and they're, they're, you know, what, what do you, what do you find? Cause the, the thing I, and I work with people like this too, um, mm-hmm people still seem to hunger for community, but they're afraid of it. Right. Cause the community that they were a part of kind of didn't work for them, but then they still have this hunger for community that I think even if their belief systems didn't work for them, they still, you still grasp grasp for some beliefs to hang on to, right. You need some guideposts. So in your, in your work, um, when, when, when you talk about this, what, what have you found to be like, if you, could put it in a, what, what are two or three key things that you find that help the healing process of religious trauma? And then how, how, how do people find, how do people find new values and new community? Like that's a, that's a hard thing to do, especially if you've been immersed in one particular Mm -hmm. tribe for most of your life. You know, like I, I wouldn't even call myself a midlife crisis. I'd call myself a three quarter life crisis. And then my prayer life, I was like, God, like, couldn't you like, let me fall apart at 40 instead of almost 60. Like I would have had more time to rebuild, you know, I fell apart at pretty late in life. And then, oh my God, it's been, I feel like a teenager again, trying to kind of rebuild all these things, you know, it's, it's very awkward, very interesting, but yeah, give us, give us some of the best points of healing for religious trauma that you found and 
how do people find new beliefs, new community that support the journey of, of healing from religious trauma? Now that's a bit, that's way big. So yeah, it's, it's complicated, right? Um, because <clears throat> for some people coming out of, you know, coming out of like physical abuse or, or they were being gaslit and, you know, by a narcissist, right. That was like, I would say you probably need to go work with a therapist because those probably are struggling with like true PTSD responses, right? Because that was an assault on their personhood, right? And they may not have the, they may eventually have the religious ideas and the systems that they need to work on, but like they need to work on what, what does it mean to show up in their own body, right? And that's, that's where I feel like for, for people that are coming from that position, I, I think working on stability in your own body is key. And so that, you know, there's a variety of modalities that work on PTSD and, and trauma work that's, that's out there and skilled therapists should be able to, to work with somebody. There's even some things like EDMR, you know, the body keeps the score kinds of stuff that that's looking at like the brain connection with traumatic response in the body entanglement there. People have, have, I think largely the results show that it's generally positive, but there's a number of different modalities out there. There's cognitive processing therapy. That's another trauma-based one. DBT is another one that a lot of times if it's behavioral out, outputs that they're trying to manage that they'll use for trauma, but cognitive processing therapy is another major one. I, I would say if you're in that camp, you know, you need to, you need to try to show up for yourself, which may be difficult for people if they're carrying a lot of shame. Um, but to show up for themselves and find a, an affirmative equipped, skilled therapist to work on, you know, it's, it's, you, you need to learn how to show up in your own body again. Yeah. Get into therapy folks. Good therapy models. hundred <laughs> percent. Like the ones we're talking about are pretty good, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're like, you, you can ask for a therapist that's an evidence-based therapist. Some, I will say just as a catch all, um, some of us grew up where we were like, hey, my pastor is my counselor or it's Christian counseling. And so I've I've had people that the moment that you start talking about this work, they're they're immediately triggered because they're going, I don't, I don't want that. Like in. And so I'm I'm not saying that you, you can look for an evidence based practice. And those are practices that are that, that have been researched to be and demonstrated to be usually beneficial for the majority of the participants. And a skilled therapist is going to see what's working in your situation. They're going to be able to adapt to it. And, and frankly, if they're a therapist that doesn't have a speciality, they, they are required, they should refer you to somebody that has that speciality so that if, if something's not getting traction with you, they're going to try to find you the help that you need. Um, and so I, I, I say that like there, there are people that are devoted to making this a science validated practice. Now, it doesn't mean it's a guarantee for everybody. And it doesn't mean it's not a little bit trial and error trying to find a therapist that you connect with. Like that's, that's just humans being humans. Um, but, but there are a lot of therapists out there that are really trying to do their best to pro provide consistent care to individuals, but that are, are following the modalities and, and the, the evidence-based practices yeah. that are there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, during COVID, you know, we had these bunches of online therapy, you know, like that are, mm -hmm. that have advertised even nationally to some degree that where you can connect with a therapist online. And mm -hmm. have you found any of those, like, is there one or two of those that you, that you actually like, or do you think, or would you 
recommend people search around in their local setting where you can go face to face versus Zoom or or just yeah, I, does it matter? I've got a love hate <laughs> with virtual. So I, I'm about 50 50 virtual and in person. Um, and and the 50 percent that's that's virtual, um, they're still all in my area. Like we could physically get together, but for a lot of them, it'd be a 45 minute to an hour drive, or it happens that the only hour they have free in their week is over lunch on a Friday. And so we do sessions over lunch on Fridays so that that's, that's when we can meet. So that for, for me, my preference is to use those for situations or like, say you've got a client that's dealing with such high level anxiety, they can't get out of their home. Um, okay. Virtual makes a ton of sense for for that. I I do find that um, in person helps for speed of recovery. Like there's just I've gotten better and better at using technology for therapy and and doing work together. You know we'll we'll set up whiteboards or do worksheets or I'll interview and take notes. Um, so I've gotten better at doing that. But I I feel like you can do those things in person with you know fewer barriers and then it's I think it's easier to build that therapeutic bond in person. Um, in terms of the online ones, so much of it would depend on the actual therapist that you're working with. Um, I, I, pros and cons there. You might find somebody that's great, that's available. You don't have to do a lot of searching in like psychology today or, you know, Googling in your area to see who's a therapist in your area, talking to a friend to get a referral because they're going to have a whole bunch and they're going to plug you in with somebody. I some of the things that makes me a little bit skeptical is like the the statements they make that like if you don't feel like you're connecting at any point we can swap and put you with the, another therapist what, what i'll tell you is that for a therapist to really get into a position to understand your presenting issue and your history well like it's going to take them a couple sessions um, and honestly half of the time when clients come to you the thing they tell you in the first couple sessions is their presenting problem winds up not being their presenting problem but it's, it's the thing either they were comfortable with or is the thing they refused with when they walked in the door. And so it's the thing that you might start with, but some of those things take the history with the client. And so if you're able to get that in that kind of online, you know, BetterHelp being one of the more, more well-known ones, then, then fantastic. And if somebody's able to get a, get a therapist that's working well with them, fantastic. I, I worry a little bit about people that might have concerns around vulnerability or have concerns around how they're presenting that they just go, okay, I'm feeling discomfort now. And now I'm going to hop to another therapist. Right. And I, I think it could, I'm not saying people have to go to a therapist when they don't want to, but it could become sort of a reinforcer of some of the, the exact, the exact same things you're trying to work somebody out of in therapy. If they can just like, okay, I'm going to swap. Uh, this got awkward. I'm going to swap. I shared too much. I'm going to swap. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. Actually, I've never heard. Any, I don't know that they even release the numbers. How often that that happens in that space? That that's the tickle in my brain. Is like, do you develop long, longer relationships that are long enough? You know, four months, six months to really do some quality work with somebody before they move on. Yeah. So just we're we're about out of time here, but uh, I wanted to. Um, it's interesting to me, like, you know, there's lots of types of trauma people. I would recommend anybody get therapy for any kind of trauma they've gone through. So not all trauma is religious in nature. It does seem to me, Josh, and I'm just curious, you, you can make a quick comment on this. And then if, if people want to connect with you, I, I, I want you to give them a, 
you know, how, how they might do that. But, um, uh, it seems to me like the people, you know, how people, some people grow up in church and, you know, mm-hmm. they hate, they don't really buy into it deeply. They kind mm-hmm. of skirt along and, you know, okay, yeah, that's cool. But then they're, they're not really ever really into it. They don't ever really go deep. They're not ever really pursuing, you know, trying to build the belief system of the religious community that they grew up in. And, they, mm-hmm. they kind of can take it or leave it a little bit. Maybe they grow up, get out of college, have some kids, and they think, oh, yeah, we should take our kids to church, and they go back to church. I, I found that some of those people sometimes are have um, – it's almost like they don't – they never really bought deeply into the religious culture anyway. Right. So their trauma usually manifests in different ways if they have trauma, Right. Mm-hmm. But those who invest deeply in their religious cultures and then it falls apart, that's the, that's the, tr- and that's kind of one of the things I've noticed these last four years as I've worked with people, the, mm-hmm. the people who believed harder <laughs> right. have, the, have the harder time. Like I believed deeply, you know, and then, the, yeah. and then at, at a late in life to like re to kind of all of a sudden question everything. And I was always a deep thinker, deep reader, but man, it's painful sometimes, you know, to go yeah. through that. It can be a painful, painful thing, religious trauma. And I, I, I see that the, the, the harder people believe, the harder they fall. I mean, to make it really simple, you know what I'm saying? hundred percent. Yeah. It's it, to me, it's the closer it gets to like your conceptualized identity for yourself. Like if, if it's literally like, Hey, they have a movie night for my kids. Right great we're gonna have fun i don't have to plan a night for for my kids it just happened to be a church right like and you're like okay we don't have that anymore great we're gonna get some other activities right and to your point like i think there's people that they use church activities like that you know they like the music around the holidays maybe you know like mm-hmm. and fine that's not to judge them i'm just saying to, right. to your point like there there are those that sometimes they're healthier <laughs> I, yeah yeah, I, I, I would say that that's probably when it comes true. to religious stuff anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think there, it's those that grew up and it became just sort of a core part of, you know, you, if you're going to do a blurb about yourself, it would be one of the descriptors. You get eight words to describe yourself. If one of them is is that or it's the first one, like then I'd be like, yeah, you probably are going to experience some pain when, when something goes wrong in life that the system doesn't explain, right? Like it's it's going to get this is going to jerk you around quite a bit because it's like right there. Yeah. 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 I have a friend who does a podcast here in Kansas city that, uh, I, I think he would call himself an ex evangelical and, you know, he grew up in this really strict Pentecostal thing. Like they taught him that, that the devil put dinosaur bones into the ground to deceive people. I have heard that one. It's really <laughs> what he was I'm like, I grew up pretty conservative, but I, I'd never even heard that one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, interesting. Yeah, that didn't that that didn't take long for to fall apart on him, you know. <laughs> yeah, but he believed it for a while, you know. He literally thought that, you know. Well, I, I think part of it is like depending on the age when some of those things. I mean, I'm sure you've had these experiences. Like, it starts with like the, I got your nose, like when your uncle or your granddad gets your nose, and you're like, when you're really young, you're like, I think you just got my nose, right? Like. There, there's a point in life when somebody tells you something like that and you don't have the skills or the ability or the perspective or history to go like, this might not be true. And <laughs> and I think that's exactly it. Like you're like, Oh, yep. yeah, yeah. 
Well, man, we could talk all day about this. Uh, thank you for joining us at Spirituality Adventures. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Those of you who listened all the way to the end, thanks so much. If you're not already supporting Spirituality Adventures, go to the website, spiritualityadventures.com, and jump on and be a part of our support team. We'd greatly appreciate it. Josh, how can people get a hold of you if they want to? Um, I'll share my email with you, if that's okay, and then you can – do you have show notes that you can put it in? We can We can put it in notes, yeah. Sure. That'd be great. That's what I'll do. All right. Share it. You're Oh, you want me to just put it in the notes? Yeah, but, no, it's fine. Yeah. I was, I was going to send you the notes if that's okay. okay. Yeah, that's fine. Perfect. All right. Well, Josh, tell, tell, uh, tell Sarah said, Hey, Sarah, right? I will. Yep. Yeah. 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 I was, yeah. yeah. Tell her I said, hello, your wife. And, uh, Man, thanks for the work you're doing. I love it. I'm glad that our paths crossed again. And I love hearing where you're going with all this. So I'm it's good to see you, Fred. It's good good to reconnect. Hopefully see you next year. I don't are you gonna make it back to the I'm planning on making it a regular event for sure. Yep. Getting to know lots of the people around that around the Wild Goose Festival. And uh yeah, so I'm planning on being there. All right. We'll see you then. Thanks take everybody care, for tuning in to Spiritual Adventures. Thanks, Josh. Uh, take care, and we'll see you next time. This has been another episode of Spirituality Adventures. Be sure to visit the website at spiritualityadventures.com and click on the support tab and help us keep creating content like this.